Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 180. Thank you for being here with us. Bienvenidos bitches. Buiti binafi. And thank you for listening. Yeah. Now, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. What? It's just the way it is. Now, there are many <laughs> well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy a black latinx woman and i'm beth and i just happen to be white it's all right y'all she's just melanatedly challenged (laughs) too true We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. <laughs> and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops Patreon. Yeah. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? So, today we're talking about John Royster and John Royster, Whoa. father and son, and yeah. both convicted murderers. <laughs> wow, this is a wild one. I don't think we've it ever is. covered a case like this. Nope. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm all right, you know, just mm-hmm. trucking along. Got yeah. nothing to report. Yeah. And a year is approaching. Yeah. Uh, Christmas still is here. coming up. Yeah. Yep. Still here. Still here. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we had our video club, which oh, was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. And we watched and discussed Somebody's Daughter, 1492. And you can still weigh in, by the way, by getting at us on all the socials. And you can join us on the next one. Don't yeah. know what it's going to be yet. But um, I have been getting into the holiday season. You're right. Christmas is almost here. The yep. lights, the hot cocoa, the movies, the snuggles. Nice. I love it all. Yeah. Um, normally I hate Christmas, but really? to this this year feels different. Oh, yeah. Huh. Well, only since I became a parent oh. <laughs> because it's so expensive. Oh, um. <laughs> and yeah, it is stressful, but I still yeah. love it. I love watching the kids open their presents and stuff. Yes, I love, love that it. part. But the yeah. getting there is a lot. I mean, I it's used to do yeah. way too much. I would put powdered sugar footprints. I remember from... that year that you did that. Yeah. 
Oh my God. My back hurts so bad. Then the next year I did reindeer footprints oh, individually. I oh mean, my God. The kids don't Yeah, need that's that. too much. No. Yeah. So anyway, I can't wait till I can reveal Santa is me. Celebrate me. <laughs> so now we're going to get into listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Ooh, the sweet sound. Yeah. The sweet sound. So what is in that bag, Beth? Well, we got an IG message from Loquin who said, I want to give a huge thank you to Wendy for not killing that snake. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I think the snake was happy too. <laughs> Snakes are such beneficial parts of our local ecosystem and all they want to do is keep pest rodents out of your yard and stay away from you. Mm-hmm. I keep two corn snakes, which are local to my area, North Carolina, but captive bred. So many people are scared of these babies, but they really are friends. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love snakes too. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. They're my favorite, actually. (laughs) Also, wrongful convictions are pretty much the opposite of your thing, but as a misplaced Alaskan, I would be remiss not to direct your attention to the Fairbanks Four, four innocent indigenous men convicted of the murder of one white man in the 90s, and they were exonerated in 2015. So we're definitely going to have to look into that. Oh, yeah. I think that that is a a worthy case to cover. Lots of the things that we... It's Fruit Loops adjacent. Um, Mm -hmm. We normally um, don't cover cases like that, but I I checked the link and... (laughs) I can't look away. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you so much, Loquin. Let me give you some hip hop air horn. Thanks for rocking with us, Boos. Yeah, um, thank so, you. Uh, we got two new Patreons this week, Marlene and Jay. Now, Marlene is a returning champ. Yeah. So hip hop air horns for Mean Green Marlene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is for you. Hey, hey. What's the matter with to crime all the time? Uh, it's so divine. <laughs> Thanks so much, Marlene. <laughs> do, 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 do. Yes, we love Marlene. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. Come and get Marlene. Come and get Marlene. Come and get Marlene. Come and get Marlene now. Boop, boop, boop. Okay. <laughs> I got a little too into it, but that's because I love you so much, Marlene. We love yeah. you so much. Um, so, Jay, this tune is for you. J-A-E is simple as do-re-mi. J-A-E, one, two, three. Thanks for being a Patreon. <laughs> I hope you enjoy. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. We're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Well, today we're going to tell the story of the two John Roysters, father and son, both murderers. Oh my God, I can't believe it. So now we're going to get into some stats. 
So Papa Royster, a.k.a. John Royster Sr., and by the way, they didn't have the same middle initial. Right. So I don't think that technically makes him junior. No, anyway, no, but uh, yeah, whatever. But anyway, you know, we do it with the Bushes, so we might as well do it with these murderers. I mean, George H.W. and then George, George the other W. One. Yeah. Yeah. W. So anyway, John Royster, they were men who brutally attacked women, and they each killed one woman. Royster Jr. was a robber, which I learned is different than burglary. Yeah. Um, because robbery has an element of violence and threats. Um, yeah, burglary also- is like going into somebody's house when they're not there and taking yeah, their stuff. Yeah, nobody needs to be present for a yeah, burglary. Right. Um, both include theft in the Venn diagram of crimes. Both right, include right. Theft, but one involves violence and threats and the other one doesn't. So um, look at us learning stuff. So and then uh, Junior was also a rapist and a murderer. We want to say rest in power to the queens that lost their lives and thoughts and prayers to the survivors of the violence in this case and thoughts and prayers to the families and communities left in the wake of these crimes. So Senior's victim was Willie Jean Dukes, who was killed with a shotgun. And he also shot Duke's sister. I did not get her name. And uh, Junior's victims were Kyle Kevorkian McCann, a piano instructor, Shelby Evans Schrader, and he murdered 65-year-old Evelyn Alvarez. And I was under the impression there was a fourth attack by um, there, there Junior. There was, yeah. But I didn't catch that name. No, I couldn't okay. find her name. Okay, so w- apologies for that, but thoughts and prayers um, to that attack victim. So now we are going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is New York City, which we've talked about before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, many times before, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but here's a very brief history. The first native New Yorkers were the Lenape, an Algonquin people who hunted, fished, and farmed in the area between the Delaware and Hudson Rivers. Europeans began to invade the region at the beginning of the 16th century. In 1624, the Dutch West India Company sent some 30 families to live and work in a tiny settlement they called New Amsterdam. Can you smoke weed there too? In 1626. (laughs) Not in 1626. Damn it. So in 1626, the settlement's governor purchased Manhattan Island from the natives for trade goods such as tools, farm equipment, cloth, and wampum, which were small beads made from polished shells and used as money and jewelry by some Native American peoples. Fewer than 300 people lived in New Amsterdam when the settlement moved to Manhattan, but it grew quickly. In 1664, the British seized New Amsterdam from the Dutch and gave it a new name, New York City. In 1760, the city surpassed Boston to become the second largest city in the American colonies at a population of 18,000. Wow. Wow. That's exciting. (laughs) Um, Except except for all the theft and murder and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Look at us. And now we're at 8 billion in the world. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So go us. So for the next century, the population of New York City grew larger and more diverse. It included immigrants from the Netherlands, England, France, Germany, indentured servants, and African enslaved people. During the 1760s and 1770s, the city was a center of anti-British activity. The city was strategically important, and the British tried to seize it almost as soon as the Revolutionary War began. In August of 1776, despite the best efforts of George Washington's Continental Army in Brooklyn and Harlem Heights, New York City fell to the British. It served as a British military base until 1783. What? I didn't know that. I I didn't know that either. Hamilton had me believing in 1776. It was all over. It was all over, yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) So the city recovered quickly from the war, and by 1810, it was one of the nation's most important ports. In 1895, residents of Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island, Brooklyn, independent cities at that time voted to consolidate with Manhattan to form a five-borough greater New York. As a result, on December 31st, 1897, New York City had an area of 60 square miles and a population of a little more than 2 million people. On January 1st, 1898, when the consolidation plan took effect, New York City had an area of 360 square miles and a population of about 3,350,000 people. That is a wow. lot for that, is for a that lot. time. 
Yeah. But economically, it makes sense when you consider yeah. all the tax revenue, all the resources right. that it would take to manage a city. And um, I only bring this up because in, in Georgia, there are some cities and um, counties that are so small, they really can't afford to exist. They're really right. small and they're really poor. And what other counties have done is merged, but yeah. some counties just refuse. And I sort of see this as an effort for the collective in general. Um, in my mind, right. this was a good this is a good thing. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So during the 20th century, the construction of interstate highways and suburbs encouraged affluent people to leave the city, which combined with deindustrialization. Oh, my God, that's so many consonants <laughs> and other economic changes to lower the tax base and diminish public services led to even more out migration and, quote, white flight. And if you're not sure what that means... <laughs> <laughs> it's just white people leaving because they're uncomfortable with people of color or poor people living next right, to them. Right. However, the Hart Seller Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 made it possible for immigrants from Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, and Latin America to come to the United States. Many of these newcomers settled in New York City, revitalizing many neighborhoods. Crime in New York City started spiking after World War II. The highest crime totals were recorded in the late 1980s and early 1990s as the crack epidemic surged. The city had its most reported murders on record in 1990 when there were 2,245 murders. Wow. wow. That's wow. insane. Yeah. yeah, in one year. Holy yeah. moly. Wow. But later during the 90s, crime rates in New York City dropped dramatically. Many attribute New York's crime reduction to specific get-tough policies carried out by former Mayor Rudolph Giuliani's administration. That guy can have all the bags of dicks. Eat also, that's not dicks. the reason yeah. no. why. But, but we'll get, we'll to get it. into it. Yeah. <laughs> so the most prominent of his policy changes was the aggressive. And aggressive feels like an understatement when you hear young men recount what happened to them. Yeah. Aggressive policing of lower level crimes, a policy which has been dubbed the broken windows approach to law enforcement. Broken windows posits that stricter enforcement of lower level crimes curtails more serious ones. And surprise, surprise, the strategy <laughs> disproportionately targeted black and brown people. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> Another factor that people often attribute to the lowering crime rate is CompStat, which the New York Police Department adopted in 1994. It's a computerized crime tracking program used to reduce crime and achieve other police department goals. Yeah. Computers shouldn't um, decide the fate of human life. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, so... <laughs> Uh, wrong again. That was actually <laughs> not a factor, but we'll get into it. So misdemeanor arrests rose 37% across New York City between 1988 and 2001. But there was no association between these arrests and felony crime rates at the precinct level. An analysis showed that violent crime rates, homicide, aggravated assault, forcible rape and robbery, and property crime rates did not significantly decrease after the implementation of CompStat. Violent crime and property crime continued on a consistent downward slope beginning in the early 1990s. So what caused that drop in crime? Tell us, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> Many believe that it was the economic boom of the 1990s that brought down the drop in crime rates in New York City and the nation, along with the crack epidemic dying down. Look at that. People have more of what they need so they don't have to self-medicate and yeah, commit crimes um, to survive. Nuts. What that is do you nuts. know? Oh, my yeah. God. So the national unemployment rate declined 25% between 1990 and 1999 and by 39% in the city between 1992 and 1999. One study shows that a single percentage point decline in the jobless rate decreased burglary by 2.2% and motor vehicle theft by 1.8%. How uh, does that make else any see sense? These numbers? <laughs> <laughs> the answer to the problem is right there. If you don't have any money, you have to commit crimes to survive. Is that what you're telling yeah. me? Okay, I, I guess this is America, right? This is <laughs> yeah. this is what people do is commit crimes. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Golly, yeah, I, I hate it here. Oh my god. 
Increases in the real minimum wage also significantly reduce robberies and murders. 3.4 to 3.7% fewer robberies with a 10% increase in the minimum wage and a 63 to 6.9% fewer murders. Wow. Now, the period from 2015 to 2019 marked a second great crime decline in New York City, notably at a time when violence was stable or increasing elsewhere. During those years, New York City had the lowest crime rates on record in its history, which is incredible. And I will also say that this is just before the pandemic, right? This, yeah, this yeah. time period I right. just talked 20, about. After 2019, <laughs> it, it yeah. kind of goes downhill it, a little bit. It does because yeah. of the lack of um, resources that people suddenly found themselves with. Yeah, um, yeah. And, it, and lots of other things that happened. Yeah. Right. Um, but it was a reset and an opportunity. I was recently listening to a podcast with a prosecutor, a former police officer, and a legislator. And they were talking about how the way that we've been approaching crime, it really hasn't worked. And there yeah. are people on the other side who are like, we can't keep doing this. It's not working. So they're trying, they're coming up with solutions to do something better. So anyway. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So the mayor at the time, Bill de Blasio, made historic investments to coordinate and expand existing networks of nonprofits working to reduce violence through intervention and prevention. Imagine that. Hmm. Meanwhile, <laughs> judges and prosecutors began to pursue alternatives to incarceration, such as diversion. Great. The city council gave police officers more discretion to issue civil rather than criminal summons for low level crimes. And the New York legislature required officers to release certain people with written orders to appear in court, known as desk appearance tickets, instead of booking them into jail. According to Elizabeth Glazer, the former director of the mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, quote, the foot really came off the gas on arrests. At the same time, there was a very concerted effort to build up the neighborhood organizations and approaches to crime, unquote. Keep it up, Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah, so keep it up. <laughs> now we're going to get into the early life of the Royster's what do you got for us, Beth? Well, John P. Royster was born Papa Royster? In, yeah, Papa Royst, Royster. <laughs> did I say Royster? No, I did. Sorry. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> John P. was born in Brooklyn on Christmas Day in 1949 to a single mother. He was an altar boy and attended St. Ambrose Catholic School and Bishop Laughlin High School, a private Roman Catholic college prep school. Wow. Yeah. He contemplated joining the priest hood, but his mother told him that it was not possible for a fatherless man. So instead, he enrolled in Manhattan College and received an accounting degree in 1971. Wow. Yeah. In 1973, he got married. The next year, John J. Royster was born on March 12, 1974. Like his father, he was born in Brooklyn. And like his father, he too would be raised by his mother, because soon after John Jr. was born, his parents separated. According to John Sr., his wife instigated the divorce proceedings and sought to prevent him from visiting his only child. He said, quote, the child was a weapon to hurt me because it was obvious to all that there was a love relationship as obvious as the baby Jesus. Jesus, I didn't put no <laughs> shoes on, Jesus. I ran for my life. Um, Sorry. I got distracted. I fought tooth and nail to have the times I saw him, unquote. And I will say that this does happen. I, I don't know if it happens a lot in white communities, but um, in my lifetime, I've seen children sort of used as pawns oh, yeah, to punish the other yeah. parent. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know 100% that that's what was going on with this oh, in this case that you know what i'm really glad you said that <laughs> yeah yeah because we're hearing uh john senior's account yeah mm -hmm. and i couldn't find anything the mom said okay so, okay yeah i don't know got it um, okay i kind mm -hmm. of i'm looking at it with a side eye <laughs> got it i am too now that you mentioned it yeah. thank you for setting us straight og of two crime when John Jr. was about six, his mother moved with him to a third floor apartment in a brick house in the Morris Park section of the Bronx, not far from the Botanic Garden. John Jr. lived there until he graduated from high school. John Sr. saw his son only sporadically. Given visitation rights in 1980, John Sr. said he managed one magic summer of father-son outings, claiming to have taken him to Central Park, to Madison Square Garden, and to the Opera. 
He said, quote, we had great fun, but it wasn't just fun. It was educational, unquote. Then he said the boy's mother cut him off. According to a childhood friend, John Jr. was isolated from his father and his father had no influence on him. So again, I, I don't know if this is all true about the magic summer and the outings. Um, I, I don't know the veracity of that, but that's what John Sr. said. John Sr., we'll find, says a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so childhood <laughs> friends agreed that John Jr. was smart but nerdy. He collected comic books and video games, and he had an interest in anything to do with karate and martial arts. He was also bullied by many of the other kids who would steal money from him and mock him as puffy eyes and big lips. And when he was 12, he had a newspaper route. Um, black nerds is has been a thing, but I don't think black nerds were accepted in the 80s and 90s oh, but no, today no it's cool were. right yeah. no nerds were now it's cool to be a nerd yeah. yeah um and then i'll also say about the big lips thing um people m used to make fun of having big lips and i remember right. when i was a kid i would get made fun of and i used to tuck my lips in Aww. all the time everywhere i go so Aww. people wouldn't comment um right. you know but uh so i i get that teasing is yeah painful. sucks it sucks a lot yeah John Sr. seemed to have a hard time navigating life, jumping from job to job and from residence to residence. He describes himself as having had many different occupations, an accountant, insurance salesman, real estate agent, and financial consultant. What is the saying? Jack of all trades, but a master yeah. of none. Yeah. <laughs> so, but authorities uh, said he engaged in numerous questionable ventures and summed him up as a swindler. But he had no criminal record. He lived in hotels, motels, and apartments shared with others. True terrors of horror bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. So now it's time to dive on into the timeline splish splash, Beth. In 1982, Royster Sr. began a romantic relationship with a woman named Willie Jean Dukes. He lived with her until 1987 when they split up. That November, Willie Jean obtained a court order of protection, barring him from going near her. In that order, she asserted that Royster Sr. had threatened to kill her. Wow. So she announced, this guy is dangerous. Yep. And 
Well, of course, like they always do to women of colors, listen to everything they say. Um, So at the time, Willie Jean lived with her two sisters in South Jamaica, Queens, and worked for the New York Telephone Company in Manhattan. She took the same route home from work each night, catching the number seven subway at Grand Central. In early January 1988, she was waiting for a train on a crowded subway platform with her sisters, who were reportedly with her out of fear for her safety. Royster Sr. had either followed her or waited for her on the platform. With a 12-gauge shotgun, he killed Ijole. her and wounded one of her sisters. Can, can you imagine? No. Oh, my a God. A 12-gauge shotgun at the subway. No. That would be that's terrifying. terrifying. Yeah. Willie Jean's court order to keep Royster Sr. away from her had expired several weeks before she was killed. Wow. Wow. That's, um, I don't know. I That really makes me upset and angry. Yeah. Also, this is before, like, mass shootings and shooting, like, shooting multiple people in a public place was a thing. Right. Um, so I just noted that. Uh, At his trial, Royster Sr. chose to defend himself. Um, A man who defends himself has a fool for a client, they Mm -hmm. say. He was well-spoken, confident, possibly narcissistic. Uh, (laughs) At one point during the trial, he devoted a fair amount of time talking about how he had been a guest on the Gil Noble television show. Uh, (laughs) Really important to the the trial. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Royster Sr. was sent to prison for 33 and a half years to life. Royster Jr. was 14 years old at the time. Despite his father's troubles, Royster Jr. did very well in school. In junior high, he was an honor student and class president. In high school, he skipped a grade. But since he was a year younger than his classmates, he was at a social disadvantage. He was also self-conscious about wearing braces throughout high school. Oh, that's so hard. I remember there was a time in my life I wanted braces because everybody had them. And I never got them, but I was so sad. (laughs) The grass is always greener, right? It really is. Especially when you're younger and you don't like realize, you don't know any better. You know, you're just like, I just want to fit in. And whatever it takes, if everybody has three eyes, I want three eyes too. I want three eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Howard Unger, who sat next to him in an intermediate school, 144, said, quote, he was really nice, fun guy, intelligent, outgoing, unquote. It's been reported that when he was still a high school student, Royster Jr. left home to live with friends. After high school, he spent a month at Covenant House, a home for troubled teenagers. So uh, this guy, um, his behavior kind of reminds me of my brother a little bit. Oh, interesting. Because um, he, when he was still in, my brother, when he was still in high school, he would just, he would leave and he wouldn't come back. From for school? Weeks. The house, my parents' house. Yeah. What? In high school? In high school. Yeah. Wow. He, he was 18, you know, so he was but an still, adult. Yeah. And um, my parents would get in fights with him. It was horrible. But oh, um, he just did whatever the fuck he wanted to do, really. And I don't oh. know if it's the same as, as what this guy was doing, too. But, but it, it reminds just made me. It. it made me think of that. Yeah. Well, I, I also want to speak to the fact that it is traumatic when, for a child when a parent goes away to prison. True. We have such a high prison population. There's sev- like 70 million Americans in prison. Yeah. And there are children and families who are left in the wake of that trauma. True. And um, so I I just want to acknowledge that. Yes, yes. So um, like his father, he began to roam from address to address in Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. He would meet people and stay with them for a while. He sometimes stayed in housing for people experiencing homelessness, and he may have lived on the streets at times. James Burnett, who came to know Royster Jr. around 1993, when they were both living at Covenant House, said that most of the youths there were determined to put their lives on track, but not Royster Jr., (laughs) <laughs> he said, quote, sometimes he would ramble on at the mouth and say things that absolutely made no sense. And he would talk to himself. There Ooh. were tons of times we were having conversations and he'd say, wonder what it would be like to jump out of a building, unquote. Oh, <laughs> OK. <laughs> For uh, I, I think it would um, suck. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but, um, <ching. laughs> hold for applause. Hold for applause. <laughs> so once both had left Covenant House, the two of them got into 
into arguments over Royster Jr.'s habit of running up steep phone bills on James's phone. He would constantly mooch off friends. According to James, women frequently rebuffed him. He was still interested in the martial arts, but the meditative side rather than the physical side. They said he was fascinated by all Eastern philosophy and always carried a book about Taoism or Buddhism. He was also fond of a book that summed up some summoned. <laughs> that summoned up Freud. No, is he a wizard too? Did he go to Hogwarts? <laughs> that summed up the theories of Freud. And remind me who Freud is. I, I know was, Freudian slips. Yeah. So he was a psychiatrist. Oh, so. okay. I don't know if he was the first one, but okay. he, he was up there. He was okay. one of the first ones. Okay. So yeah. he's into self-ex. He's exploring um, while making Different wild com- comments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he also seemed to have more sinister interests. Among his books was a bound manual on how to become a serial killer. What? <laughs> Wait a minute. They have how to be a serial killer for dummies? Anyway, <laughs> Abdullah Sano, who lived in a building on University Avenue in the Bronx where Royster stayed, quote, and he liked to watch violent and pornographic movies, especially movies of men hitting women. He laughed at them a lot. He saw them as funny, unquote. Mm. Mm. Okay. Come and get your friend. Yeah. <laughs> James Burnett said Royster Jr. became self-centered and obsessed with sex. Quote, he thought all women were into him and that he could get away with anything with any woman he wanted. Whoa. He could be talking about those rollerblades over there and he'd turn the conversation to sex. Unquote. Wow. Um, one track I don't mind, I guess. even, yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I mean, how old is he by now? He's eight, 18, 20. Yeah, he's young. Okay, so he gravitated from job to job, but he never stayed at one for very long. And none seemed to bring him much satisfaction. His lengthiest employment was at The Gap. Welcome to The Gap. Want to buy some crap? <laughs> Where he worked as a part-time <laughs> stock clerk from September 1992 to January 1993. And this is kind of interesting because he was saying those wild stuff to his friends. Yeah. And uh, a rapper who shall not be named also used to work at The Gap. Oh, really? What happened to him? Oh, yeah. Uh, so like, The Gap destroyed both of them. The Gap! It's The Gap's <laughs> fault! I'm going to say that for my takeaways. <laughs> Uh, a manager said Royster quit because he said he was unhappy with his hours. So he uh, worked at The Gap uh, from September to January. Not long. So not very not long. long. And but that I was- also know that in the 90s, stores like The Gap that had a majority white clientele, The Gap, Abercrombie, would give people of color, employees of color, terrible hours so that um oh. customers didn't have to see them so right. um yeah right. yeah right. so uh, i'm yeah I mean, and he did quit I, because of the hours so yes. okay that makes sense yeah. but i was just noting that they said this was his lengthiest employment and it Whoa. was just like a few months wow okay yeah. thank you D- didn't yeah. catch that okay whoa <laughs> in 1994 he joined the navy but was given a psychiatric discharge eight whoa. months later whoa that's fast yeah that's very fast yeah in 1995 he worked briefly at a bed bath and beyond store then he found a job as a sales clerk at software etc a computer store the manager said he was punctual dressed neatly in slacks and a tie and exhibited a working knowledge of computer software software. Quote, he was very quiet, simple. Most of the time, he just concentrated on his job, unquote. But one day in early December, he just didn't show up to work. The next day, he came in to drop off his name tag and bathroom key and said he had to stop working because he had family problems. Hmm. So I don't know what those family problems were or if it was just an excuse. Yeah, Yeah. that's what I'm thinking. Or I, I don't know. I don't know. It's the old, my grandma died again. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Friends said he expressed an interest in going to college, as his father did, and he talked about applying to several city colleges. In December, he fell in love with a Japanese woman who was temporarily in New York visiting her family. James Burnett said Royster would tell others she's the one, but she returned to Japan in January. So he met her in December and she left in January. So he knew her for a matter of weeks. Well, when you know, you know, Beth. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. (laughs) (laughs) The girlfriend identified by the Daily News as Yumiko, a 28-year-old boutique clerk. So she's 28 and he's in his early 20s. And she probably has her stuff together, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
anyway, she was a 28-year-old boutique clerk, and she said that Royster had recently offered to marry her if she returned. In a letter that Royster wrote to Yomika on May 13, 1996, he said, quote, The biggest mistake I have ever made in my life was letting you get on that plane to go back to Japan. For that, I will never forgive myself, unquote. Hmm. A detective who spoke to him after his arrest later said, quote, he said he loved that girl. And in the end, it came out that he felt powerless when she left, unquote. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. In April, he got a job in customer service at a staple store. Monet Simmons, who also worked at the store, said, quote, he was very nasty to women, especially white women. Out of nowhere, he would make nasty comments, unquote. After a couple of weeks, he was dismissed. He did this at work? Yes. <laughs> Whoa, okay, not good. Days after his dismissal on June 4th, 1996, Kyle Kevorkian McCann, a piano instructor, gave a lesson in her studio apartment on West 57th Street, then went for a walk in Central Park in an area regarded as crowded and safe. Near a popular playground at about three in the afternoon, she was attacked. Her attacker smashed her face and head repeatedly into a cobblestone and concrete path before trying to rape her. Mm. She was found beaten beyond recognition and near death. Her clothes were in disarray. For three days, police tried to find out who she was as she lay in a coma in her hospital bed. Her parents were on vacation and her boyfriend, also a musician, was in Europe on tour. Finally, one of her students recognized a police sketch and was able to identify her in the hospital by her fingers because her face was swollen beyond recognition. Oh, wow. That's crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. The police did not release her name. Doctors gave her a 10% chance of survival, but after eight days, she came out of the coma, first in a vegetative state, then in a childlike state. She had little short-term memory and would forget visitors as soon as they left the room. She did not remember the attack. Over several months, she had to relearn how to walk, dress, read, and write. Turned her life completely upside, upside down. down. Yeah, yeah. On June 5th, the day after Kyle's attack, 50-something-year-old Shelby Evans Schrader was walking by the East River and was grabbed from behind. She felt an arm curl around her neck. She fought and kicked and tried to scream, but the arm cut off her breath. Losing consciousness, she thought she was going to die. It just, it sounds like you just can't go for a, a walk. Like, a walk, yeah. I mean, uh, three o'clock in the afternoon. This is a fear women have everywhere, not just yeah, New York. Right, um, but the Central Park one, it was near a playground at three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. You know? Yeah, what the hell? Um, police said her attacker grabbed her by the ears and smashed her face into the asphalt repeatedly. The man beat her head against the blacktop so savagely that her nose was flattened. Wow. Yeah, she remembered little of the attack and never saw her assailant's face. Only a shouting passerby saved Shelby from worse damage. She spent five hours undergoing plastic surgery with only local anesthesia because the oh. surgeons were worried about brain damage. Oh my God. She spent three days in the hospital, her face mottled with bruises and stitches. Oh my God. The police thought her attack was an isolated incident and nobody connected the beating to Kyle's assault the day before in Central Park. Hmm. On June 7th, a 26-year-old woman was walking home on a footbridge in Yonkers near Van Cortland Park when she was also grabbed from behind. Her assailant pounded her head into the bridge, leaving her face a bloody pulp. She was sexually assaulted and ended up comatose, but she survived. We were unable to learn her name. On June 11th, Evelyn Alvarez, a woman in her 60s known in the neighborhood as Lollipop Lady because she liked to give out candy to children, arrived before dawn at the Dutch Girl Cleaners that she and her husband owned for a decade. At about 4.50 a.m., she was attacked. Her attacker slammed her head repeatedly onto the sidewalk. Someone nearby called 911 to report hearing two screams. Evelyn Alvarez was found slumped in the entranceway of her dry cleaning store in a pool of blood. She died later at Metropolitan Hospital of injuries sustained in a beating to the head. Evelyn was so badly beaten that police initially thought that she had fallen from the building. Wow. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface 
to strange phenomena slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com All right. Well, now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. Royster Jr. had been arrested in March for jumping a turnstile at a subway station. As a routine part of his arrest, his fingerprints were taken and entered into a law enforcement database. A bloody print taken from the Park Avenue dry cleaner where Evelyn Alvarez was murdered matched to Royster Jr. Police picked him up that night. According to neighbors, when he was arrested, Royster Jr. was walking down the block with his dinner in his hands, singing softly to himself after oh all of that. Yeah, uh, just la 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 la. Yeah, no, so this spree happened, I think, over eight days. Yeah, um, and it was he's very chilling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he had with him a copy of the book, The Art of Peace. What? <laughs> How ironic. A 126-page volume drawn from the teachings of Morey Yuseba, the late martial artist who founded Aikido, the Japanese system of self-defense. The book promotes a nonviolent path to victory and stresses compassion, <laughs> wisdom, fearlessness, and a love of nature. Wow, Looks he like didn't have so any of antithetical. Yeah, yeah, completely yeah. opposite. Wow. Yep. Royster was taken to the 19th precinct where he started talking, confessing to all four of the crimes. And I don't think they knew. <laughs> I think Whoa. he just was like, hey, guys, I did these things. <laughs> all right. Since I'm here, pull up a chair. <laughs> he said these were the only four bad things he had ever done in his life. Whoa. OK, so <laughs> everything else so he did was perfect. So that means you should let me go home. <laughs> no, yeah. it doesn't. Uh, only uh, four things. So it, just women, you know. Ridiculous. <laughs> uh, so in a written confession, he said he was thinking of his girlfriend when he attacked Kyle in Central Park. Detectives say Royster told them the victim, quote, didn't deserve the beating. She said nothing to encourage it. I don't know why I did it, unquote. Hmm. Royster recounted his wandering through Central Park in the mid-afternoon on June 4th, dressed in a coat and tie because of a job interview that morning. He said he moved from bench to bench, sipping water and talked to different people about physics and about the beauty and harmony of the natural world, as you Ooh. do before you try to kill somebody. Yeah, but he's scoping it out, which I'll get into in my tips on how okay. not to get okay. murdered. So Royster described his impulses as an instant and overwhelming rage. When he was walking on a footpath near Central Park West and a woman walked past him, quote, I watched her take a few steps ahead of me. Then I grabbed her from behind. I don't know what came over me. I just remember bits and pieces. I grabbed her by the hair, pushed her against the side of the red picket fence. I pushed her to the concrete. I hit her head on the concrete a few times facing down, then two or three times facing up. I remember bits and pieces. Yeah, that's a lot. That's, that's a, a lot, lot of bits of and details. pieces. Yeah, my guy. Yeah. You, you enjoyed that. Yeah. 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 He said he pulled her dress and underwear down and tried to rape her, but ejaculated prematurely. Wow. He's uh, giving all of the details. Yeah. Um, all the tea. <laughs> all the tea. <laughs> so Royster <laughs> Sr., when interviewed in prison, said he had yet to make sense of any of it. Speaking of his son's bright side, he summed up the likeness they shared. Quote, he's a chip off the old block, unquote. God. <laughs> that is disgusting. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to get into the trial. What the what, Beth? Prosecutors sought a life sentence rather than the death penalty. Royster's psychiatric condition apparently played a part in the decision. The prosecution presented 115 witnesses, including the surviving witnesses, and 135 pieces of evidence, including DNA, bloodstains, a fingerprint, and the videotaped confession in which Royster Jr. described the attacks. This is how you get a, con a conviction, is with yeah. all with all, all this evidence. That. Take yeah. note, prosecutors! <laughs> um, <laughs> so, in the confession, that was played for the jury. Royster Jr. said that after he had viciously attacked Kyle as she walked through Central Park, quote, I felt like I had accomplished something. I just remember walking, 
feeling like I was indestructible or invincible, like I could just do anything, unquote. He also said that when he left the scene of the attack, quote, I was humming, unquote. What the fuck? Oh, my God. Dan Gottlin, Royster's defense attorney, argued that Royster suffered from a mental illness that fueled an uncontrollable rage. The prosecution countered, saying that he was faking. Hmm. Royster burst into tears when his high school teacher testified that he had been a bright and intelligent student. Mm. After a six-week trial, John J. Royster was convicted on March 6, 1998 of murdering Evelyn Alvarez and the attacks on Shelby Evans Schrader and Kyle Kevorkian McCann. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, I'll tell you. Both of the John Roysters are still incarcerated. Royster Sr., who is now 72 years old, is housed at Otisville Correctional Facility. He has a parole hearing in March of 2023. Royster Jr. is in Sullivan Correctional Facility. He received a full life term and is ineligible for parole. He's now 48 years old. Kyle Kevorkian McCann's doctor told her it would take 10 years to recover. She moved away from New York City, married, and had a child. To the rest of the world, she was only known as the piano teacher because they didn't reveal her name until 2006 when she told her story. Good for her. Good for her. She apparently made a full recovery from brain trauma. But Dr. Yehuda Ben Yeshe, a professor of criminal or clinical rehabilitation medicine, Uh, criminal rehab. I've never heard of that specialty. Uh, (laughs) Professor of clinical rehabilitation medicine at New York University School of Medicine said, quote, once brain injured, you are always brain injured for the rest of your life. There is no cure. There's only intensive compensation, unquote. During an interview, Kyle said, quote, I feel my life has been redefined by Central Park. Before park, after park. Mm. Will there ever be a time when I don't think, oh, this is the 10th anniversary, the 11th anniversary, unquote. Mm. Shelby Evans Schrader said the attack changed her, ruining her sense of balance and leaving her feeling vulnerable and afraid, fearing any stranger behind her and feeling like there is a cage around her. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think um, made the Roysters, the two John Roysters snap. <laughs> what do you got, Beth? <laughs> well, mental health definitely played a role. I don't Absolutely. know about John Royster Sr., but Junior definitely had psychiatric issues. Mm-hmm. One fr- friend said that he talked to himself mm-hmm. and said things that didn't make sense. Yeah. He was discharged from the military for psychiatric issues. Yeah. And it makes me wonder if John Sr. had similar issues and how much genetics played a role. I mean, they, yeah. they both had difficulty fitting into society, even though they were both... Uh, really seemed like capable. highly intelligent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They just couldn't fit in. And mm-hmm. so I wonder, you know, how much that played a role. I wonder too. Yeah. So they, they were both angry men who took out their anger on women. Yeah. And I wish I knew more like wh- where did this anger towards women come from? Yeah. Um, they were both raised by women. Mm-hmm. I'd like to know more uh, about their their mothers. Yeah. Were they just angry uh, because women were in charge of them when they were young, so they felt like they didn't have control? Or uh, maybe they were abusive, but it doesn't sound like it to me. It sounds like they had pretty pretty good lives, really. Uh, but it's hard to know. It um, is hard to know. Yeah. Every, yeah. I mean, especially with the older one, um, with Pop, with Papa Royster, we can only speculate. I mean, he was born yeah. in the 1940s. 1949. Yeah. Right. And his, his mom was a single mother, like from the beginning. She uh-huh. was never married. And that's mm-hmm. back then. That was like right. uh, very shameful. So it's shameful. hard to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's a black woman raising right. her son on her own. And this is after World War II when crime started to escalate in New York City. And mm-hmm. es- crime escalated because of the dwindling resources for people. Right. right. So, right. Um, again, all speculation. But I, I, I think that contributed. Um, but yeah. He, 
regarding John Jr., John Jay, um, he was brought up during the 90s in Brooklyn, which was right. a difficult place for a young Black kid with a lot of potential, but not many resources at his disposal. Yeah. Um, and that was unfortunate. Um, I also, um, this was in the height of the crack epidemic and the war on crime and the war on drugs. At the same time, Giuliani had his fucked up policies, um, broken windows policies that made... Um, Yet many young and black and brown kids and men targets of police brutality and violence. So it kind of when we were talking about the setting, to me, it was like a powder keg, like something yeah. something was bound to, to go wrong. Those are not to ideal happen. conditions yeah. for young people to come up in. Right. Um, right. But we did get hip hop out of the struggle. So that's true. That. That's true. Yeah, there is um, that. So parents uh, splitting up, I think, is an important part of the story because he talked about feeling powerless and right. ab- like not, he didn't say abandoned, but that's what I picked up. Yeah. And so when your parents split up, it's like a death of the way your family existed at a certain yeah. point. And for kids, that's hard. It's uh, devastating. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I do think that senior loved his, his son, but I think he loved himself more. And yeah, I definitely. do believe he was a narcissist. And from yeah. my, my days of listening to mental illness, happy hour um narcissistic parents really mess up their kids yeah they fuck up their kids for yeah sure. yeah and um even though he didn't have a lot of contact with his son i still think it made an impact and also him yeah. going to prison while his son was a teenager yeah um, yeah a lot of good points yeah uh thank you did you hear that? The OG True Crime said I did something good. Um, so his, and then and then to add insult to injury, his his girl that he thought was the one left, and um, so that's when the rampage started. Um, right, and, and he so, he, lo- he lost that job. It was just I think he was feeling out of control, and yes. like some of the th- comments that he made about how after he. He uh, felt the sense attacked. of euphoria and yeah, he attacked the one woman in in Central Park. How mm-hmm. happy he was, basically, yeah, and how yeah. powerful he felt afterwards. And I think that it made him feel like he was in control when prior to that he was losing control. Absolutely. His girlfriend left. He lost mm-hmm. his job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's what you know we in this true crime community understand about crimes against women or um, rape is that it is a crime of power. It doesn't have much to do with sex necessarily. Um, So his heart got broken. Um, This part about him being particularly nasty to white women at work and getting fired. um, I didn't know what to make of that. I mean, I think given his experience, I was just curious if there were any white women in his life who showed him kindness or if he was one of those people who had been raised to sort of be cautious around white people. Yeah. Um, I I would really like to know more about both of their childhoods. Yes. Yes. Um, Not saying I am like totally on board with it, but I, I understand, I understand it if that is the case. And I think he had been hurt by many people as he came into adulthood. Um, he, he may have blamed, may blamed his mom for the, you know, um, yeah, we always get blamed for everything. We don't, we, Oh my God, here, here's a dollar, put it in your therapy fund. And, um, I think he sought to punish them. Um, and I was like really struck by the fact that he seemed to enjoy it. And I wondering if this is nature versus nurture, is he, a psychopath right, i don't know right. i yeah. don't know if we can answer that question yet but yeah uh it made me think yeah okay well let's get on down to how not to get murdered so if you love true crime and you don't want to die here's a tip for you This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. All right. So a couple quick ones. Basically, if you don't remember anything I say after this, remember this. I'll have a Kevin McAllister mindset from Home Alone. (laughs) Head on a swivel. Uh, be careful about, sh- you know, letting people know what's really going on, what your location is, what you really got going on. Carry personal safety items. They're at the checkout at any store. Um, also, 
it is okay to lie, especially if it's about your safety. Um, and I was thinking about that 10 year old boy in Pennsylvania. Did you hear about him? He thwarted his own kidnapping. I don't think so. A woman was following him and asking him where his family was, tried to lure him into store, give oh, him all wow. kinds of sweets, Hansel and Gretel style. And <laughs> the kid ducked into the store at, where he was familiar with this store. And he approached a clerk and said, can you please act like you're my mom? This lady's following me. Oh and my then God. That woman went and in put herself in between the dangerous woman and the child and locked the door to keep him safe. But he wow. lied to save his life. I mean, yeah. think of all the lies you can, like if somebody's like he was this art today's perp was bouncing from um, park bench to park bench, striking up conversations. I imagine it went something like this. Um, are you here alone? And then you can oh. be like, you know what? Nope. My family's nope. over there. No, nope. um, you uh, know, my friend I'm, just went I'm, to get no, an ice cream cone. Exactly. Lie. They'll be right back in lie one Lie your minute. ass off. Yeah. <laughs> you're in the elevator um, and somebody sees you're alone. Pull out your phone. I'll, I'm coming I'll right, right up. There, I'll be right yeah. there. Don't worry. Uh, so lie. <laughs> somebody comes to the door and you're alone and you're like a woman. Practice. <laughs> practice your bad voice. So I'll be like, no. Or I'll say, oh, my husband's coming downstairs. Hang on a second. You know, something like that. So lying can save your life. Um, and so be like Kevin McAllister. Lie to save your life. Lie to save your life. Yeah. Right on. You got anything to add? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, now it's shout out time where we shout out any content by or about any people of color, LGBTQ folks, women, marginalized anybody, or any true crime goodies. I have so much. But okay. I'm going to keep it short. I'm going to try it. Okay. Wednesday on Netflix. Uh-huh. It is phenomenal. The whole family loved it. And um the it's a little bit different twist on the typical Adams family. For example, right. they're all from the Adamses are from Mexico. They're all Latinx. Except right. for Catherine Zeta Jones. But anyway, um <laughs> also <laughs> uh uh there are a lot of BIPOC characters who there's some some problematic things I think you can point out with any with any work but in the end the young women prevail the young women of color prevail and it's really cool um so that's on Netflix and then also the I finally saw the woman king it's uh streaming um, oh nice with Viola Davis and oh it is so beautiful. It is based on true events, a true story, a real African female army who uh, their kingdom was engaged in the slave trade um, at, for for economic reasons and realized we can't keep doing this to our own people. We have to think of other ways to survive economically. And so they're at a crossroads and it's about the crossroads. It's it's just it's like 300 for black people. You remember that? that um, yeah. Russ, was it Russell Clough? Yeah. Are you not entertained? Or uh, this is Sparta. It's like that, but for black people, it's so dope. What do you got? <laughs> well, for me, it was Octavia Spencer week. Huh? What do you mean? Well, um, I watched. Is there a tab somewhere? <laughs> it just happened that way. I don't. Oh. I don't know. I don't know why. Okay. But... <laughs> well, I love her, so it's probably it was worth it. I'm sure. So I watched Spirited, which is a movie on Apple Plus. Okay. It stars Will Ferrell, Ryan Reynolds, and Octavia Spencer. Yeah, Ryan. Oh Reynolds. Oh my God! Is it funny? Did yeah, you pee your pants? Um, okay. It's a it's a modern musical twist to the classic Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol. Oh. Um, from the point of view of the ghosts. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. So yeah, I enjoyed it. It was cute. It was funny. Yeah. Oh, I like awesome. it. Awesome. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then the second uh, shout out I have is also from Apple Plus mm -hmm. and it's a TV show uh, that's called Truth Be Told, which oh. I guess it's been out since 2019. I just never heard of it before. What? But it's yeah, it's an NAACP Image Award winning mystery anthology drama series okay, starring, Octavia Spe Octavia. <laughs> starring Octavia Spencer as podcaster what? Poppy Parnell, who risks everything, including her life, to pursue truth and justice. Whoa! Oh my God. I am so excited for this weekend to watch these things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. So let me just recap for you. We've got Wednesday on Netflix. 
the Woman King streaming wherever you get streaming films. Um, Octavia Spencer stuff. We got Spirited and Truth Be Told on Apple Plus. Um, Spirited looks hilarious and Truth Be Told <laughs> looks amazing. Um, and those are on Apple Plus. Yep. No! I'm like, Squirrely, where's the rest? Oh, my God. Here we are again. Well, that's it for today. Where can the people find us in the meantime, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me, Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. 